0: Well, good morning, East Vancouver. One of my admittedly very first world annoyances is when clothes don't quite fit you properly. I don't know if you've experienced this before. Like when you get a shirt and it goes through the dryer and it hangs loosely at the back, not hugging your torso. Or when after Christmas or some holiday, uh, you find that your pants are uncomfortably, for some reason, uh, digging into your sides. Sometimes, Scripture can feel like an ill-fitting piece of clothing. Now before you stone me, let me explain what I mean. In his book, uh, Five Festal Garments, scholar Barry Webb, he imagines five of the shorter books of the Old Testament, uh, Ruth, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Esther, and Lamentations. He imagines these five books as garments as garments or robes that the people of God have at times struggled with knowing how exactly they should be worn, put on, understood, and and lived out. Don't get me wrong, from the earliest days, these books were always accepted as Scripture, but that doesn't mean they were always worn properly. We can use the book we've been in for the past five weeks as an example of this. Lamentations is a book where, if not understood in its place in the redemptive story of the Bible, Lamentations can lead to a lot of wild speculation. For example, if we ever forget that Lamentations is to be read in view of the cross of Christ, where, as Matt showed us last week, our full judgment was emptied on Jesus, poured out on Jesus, if we forget this, we can begin to wonder if hard things in our life are a result of God judging us in the exact same way he judged Jerusalem. However, properly worn, we can't deny that lamentation should be a part of the Christian wardrobe. We've seen so far how lamentations invites us to bring not only our triumphs, but our heartaches to God, our sorrow to God, We've seen the power of lament, not only for the individual, but for us corporately as a church, for for our witness to a watching world as we proclaim that we're not an escapist community. We're learning as a church what it is to wear lamentations. And yet, some snags remain. Six weeks in, it still does not quite fit. So this morning, I want us to look at lament from a different angle, in Lamentations 5, using the categories of past, present, and future. And I want us to see why lamenting rightly is always a matter of, one, remembering the past, two, bringing to God your present, and three, allowing Him to shape your hope for the future. And so if you have your Bibles, open with me to Lamentations 5, verse 1, and let's look at that one verse together. And there we read this, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our lament this morning begins again with a plea for the Lord to remember. And this word remember plays an interesting role in lamentations, doesn't it? We've heard already the poet himself remembers the pain and horror of Babylonian destruction. And it only serves to re-traumatize him. Also, the community, all of Jerusalem, we read this early in Lamentations, remembers fondly life before this terror, life before this event. But there's another person who is asked to remember in Lamentations. It's not just the poet. It's not just Jerusalem, but God himself is called upon to remember in this book. We heard this a few weeks ago whilst the poet was in the the pit of despair at at the very low point. We heard him call out to the Lord in Lamentations 3.19, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. And we should ask, why would God... God, need to remember. It seems to me on first read, this corresponds nicely with how many of us think of God as an elderly man who, you know, a few millennia in, is becoming a bit forgetful, maybe has early signs of dementia. He's forgotten, and so I'm just going to remind him of how things work around here. But that's not what the biblical author is getting at. Let me read you a quote from author Mark Vergrapp. He says this, This request, he's talking about to remember, is more than asking God not to forget. For God to remember captures the essence of his grace to his people as their covenant keeper. Remember is a request for God to intervene based on his love and promises. Listen, Christ City, it is a call for God to act. For Gropp continues in his book on lament to point to examples throughout the Bible where we see this. And so, for instance, after the judgment of the flood in Genesis 8, verse 1, we read this. But God remembered Noah, meaning God caused the waters to subside. He sent a wind to blow over the earth. He stopped up the heavens because of the promise he made to Noah to preserve him to preserve his family. We see this language again in the Exodus narrative. Israel was in Egyptian captivity under the yoke of slavery. And what does it say in Exodus 2.24? And God heard their groaning, and God what? He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so what does God do? He miraculously intervenes. He rescues them. Well, how about a New Testament example? In Luke's Gospel, we read of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. It was revealed to Zechariah that his son John would be a forerunner of the Messiah. And so John is born. And what does Zechariah say in worship? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And then in verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to what? Remember his holy covenant. God has acted. The Messiah has come. So in lament, we look back at all God has promised, all of what he has done, and all of who he is, and we say, oh, remember, O oh Lord. Remember, O oh Lord. And what we're really doing is we're asking God to act graciously to us, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but because He has set His love upon us, O oh Lord, would you remember? Would you act graciously to us? But now I want us to turn. I want us to turn and look and see what, in Lamentations five, the community is asking God to specifically bring His grace to bear upon. This is point number two: bringing, your, uh, bringing to God rather, your present, bringing to God your present. And if I can be so blunt as to say this, the present experience of the community, that the, that the community is bringing to God, is one filled with an overwhelming sense of shame. Shame. Shame is all over Lamentations 5. I want to just read a bit more of Lamentations 5, and then just spell out for us the pronounced feeling of shame that permeates this poem. First, we see that the community itself feels shame, politically or or corporately, if you will. Look at verses 2 to 7 with me. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood wood we get uh, must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Israel, the nation, has fallen from great heights. They continue to feel the effects of being a conquered people. This is well after the destruction of Jerusalem. The sin of their fathers in verse 7, did you notice that, is likely a reference back to verse 6. Israel, as Lamentations has reminded us repeatedly, sinned in putting their hope in other nations, in trusting in alliances and earthly armies, and not in Yahweh. But the shame is also very personal. It's graphic. Look at verses 10 to 14. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. Let me spell this out. Smooth skin has given way to wrinkled and discolored skin. It's a sign of of malnutrition. Women are, are raped. Traditional ruling people, princes and elders, are being openly disrespected, openly mocked. Young men are dehumanized as they perform jobs typically reserved for animals. These four verses, in fact all of Lamentations 5, cries, shame, 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 unbearable shame. And I just want to pause and have us consider as a church, what do we do with this shame? What do you and I do with this shame? To clarify, when I'm talking about shame, I'm talking about something like this. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. Now, we all might not feel shame the same way or to the same depth, but we all feel shame. In fact, theologian and pastor, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he, he connects shame all the way back to Genesis 1 and the breaking of relationship between God and humanity, this disunity at the very, very beginning. Shame is what Adam and Eve felt as they hurried to cover up their nakedness. Bonhoeffer writes this, Shame is the irrepressible memory of disunion from their origin. That's the good origin of relationship with God. It is the pain of this disunion and helpless desire to reverse it. Now shame, you might be surprised to learn, isn't always a bad thing. There's this thing called healthy shame that says to us, hey, this is not who we're supposed to be. This is not what we do. This is not how we live. Much of what Israel is experiencing through Babylonian destruction is the healthy shame of not living into their God-given identity and purpose. It's pain that has a purpose. It's this healthy shame. But now that shame, and you can feel it in the poem, almost threatens to become toxic, right? And toxic shame says this, you are bad, period. You are different. You are rejected. You are contaminated. Toxic shame says you are worthless, you are nothing, you are a zero, and you are all irredeemably these things. It can't change. I want to ask, what do we do with this shame? Now this is not an exhaustive treatment on shame, but I want to suggest just really simply three things this morning. For one, as Lamentations 5 teaches us, we bring our shame out into the open. We bring it to the Lord. It begins there. We join our shame to the shame of Israel and together we cry out for the God who is the God of covenant to act, to remember to be who we know him to be. So we begin by bringing it out into the open. We don't keep it to ourselves. But second, we remind ourselves that God already knows all of our shame, our most shameful thoughts, the most shameful things that have been done to us, the most shameful things we've done. He knows all of those things Already, there's a a prayer from the 2nd and 3rd century that begins something like this. Eternal God, to whom the hidden is clearly known as the visible. He knows all of it already. And it makes me think of the story of the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. The woman at the well had much to be ashamed about in her life and she knew it. So when Jesus says to her, go and call your husband and tell him to come here, she responds rather tersely or or defensively, I have no husband. I don't want to talk about it anymore. And of course, what do we learn in that narrative? Well, Jesus already knows. He always knew. And which brings us to the third thing we must do with our shame. We must bring it to our rescuer. We must bring it to Jesus, our rescuer who experienced deep shame at his crucifixion. Counselor Ed Welch, he writes about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and our shame like this. And I just want to read this quote to you. First, we saw only our own shame. But now, we see that Jesus' shame was deeper than our own. And we were among the scorners. First, we saw only our alienation and rejection. Now we see that Jesus' alienation and rejection was at the hands of the entire world, ourselves included. First, we saw only contempt and self-contempt. Now we see that all human contempt was focused on Jesus and we participated. See, it's through this rescuer, it's through Jesus and his work on the cross, through, through him bearing our shame, and our guilt, and our sin, that you and I in turn receive honor, eternal from our Father, honor. See, the hope of shame-filled, unclean people like you and me and the Israelites is not that we would look inward and find something in ourselves that is deemed worthy, but rather that worthiness That honor would be pronounced over us as we, in love, put our trust in Jesus. As we recognize that this is what he says about us. Friends, there is a way to interrupt shame in your life. And it goes through the cross of Christ. Invite God in the crucified Messiah, in the crucified Christ, into your present shame. And you'll soon find that He is the one who shapes your hope for the future. So past, present, and now, third point, future. Past, we remember who God is, what He's done, what He's promised, and we call on Him to remember us in our lament. Present, we today can take our shame to Jesus, can take our shame to the cross, Shame he already knows about and shame that he alone can carry, he alone can free us from. And future, we lament now, informed by the hope of what is to come. Look at verses 15 to 18 with me. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music, The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. Let me tell you what the community is in essence lamenting, and then listen to see if you can relate, okay? Let's go. Old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. Translation, normal city life has come to a screeching halt. No more celebrations. No civic activity whatsoever. Does it sound familiar? The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing turned to mourning. Translation, The joyous rituals, joy here is is talking about a ritual, not a feeling, but a ritual. The joyous rituals and celebrations we once did in the temple, now we only do sad rituals, sad things, like preaching through lamentations. Jackals prowl through desolate Mount Zion. Translation, what was once a place of worship has turned to a dangerous place, to ruin. Those jackals in verse 18, those could be predatory prophets. We see uh, false prophets being referred to like this in Ezekiel 13 verse 4. These predatory prophets are now whispering things you like to hear, now linger about in this once great place of worship. Friends, let me be clear. There is a world of dissimilarity between us and Israel. There's a lot that we cannot relate to in their lament, and yet there's also a lot of similarity. There's also a lot that we can relate to. See, we, like Israel, yet different, live in this time between the times. Christ has come, and we celebrate that. And through his death and resurrection, he is victorious over Satan, over sin, and over death. Hallelujah, Christ has come. And yet, we await his final return, don't we? We long for His coming to renew all things. And it's in this in-between place that you and I lament. And perhaps the best way to explain this is to consider the day between the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, a day that the church has historically referred to as Holy Saturday. See, there are some today who would prefer we live at the crucifixion That we live at Good Friday. And when it comes to lament, that means forgetting about the resurrection, forgetting about that stuff to come, forgetting about hope, and just living in the pain. Just embracing the pain. Living in the horror. Don't think about the hope to come. Don't think about the resurrection. Let's just live at Good Friday. And still there are others who would have us hurry past the cross and go right to the resurrection, right? I understand this impulse. It would have us go right to Easter Sunday. Sin and shame are uncomfortable, to say the least, especially when we consider that Christ bore our sin and our shame on our behalf. But Holy Saturday is where we find ourselves. In the history of redemption, Holy Saturday is where you and I stand today. A great victory has been won, and yet it's not quite full. We still await the day. And so while our sin and shame are very real, we look ahead to the hope of the resurrection. And while our hope is set on the return of Christ, we are not sentimental about suffering. We're not escapists. We recognize suffering and evil for the full horror of which it is. We remind ourselves of this as we look at the depth of suffering that Christ endured on the cross. And so Holy Saturday is where we find ourselves. It's where we stand. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you that you invite us to come to you with all of our brokenness, all of our sin, and all of our shame and you invite us to cast it upon your Son, Jesus. You invite us to remember that Christ bore our shame in our place, that we might walk in freedom. I pray that you would do a freeing work by your Holy Spirit in the lives of your church this morning as we go to proclaim your good news. In Jesus' name, amen.